Voyager. Season 4 we have encountered the Borg, Elizabeth, Lindsay, and Will. Continue the theological discourse through the Delta Quadrant. Resistance is futile. Irrelevant. Your appeal to my humanity is pointless. I can't be sure, but I think there's more going on here than just a simple hello. Well, I think it's time we get back to our bridge. No argument there. Voyager, Season 4. Welcome to Voyager, Star Trek Voyager, A Theological Journey. And in this uh, episode uh, called Prey, uh, which is uh, in Season 4 of Voyager, um, a Herogen ship meets up with uh, Voyager but doesn't attack. Uh, it itself has been attacked uh, and bears a lone, severely injured survivor. In taking him aboard for treatment, Voyager also acquires a successful, uh, the successful attacker, a member of species 8472. The crew team up with the Herogen to hunt it down, but circumstances bring uh, out Captain Janeway's desire to apply compassion, which puts her in opposition with the Herogen and with Seven of Nine. I didn't mind this episode, though I would have rewritten the ending, I have to say. I was not happy with it, but I thought it raised all sorts of really interesting ethical issues and it also raised the price of compassion, which coming into Easter I thought was an interesting topic. Mm -hmm. So, Elizabeth, when you say you would have liked to have rewritten the end, is that because you think it was poorly uh, written or not in character or just because it, it upset you that the characters made those choices? Um, I don't know. I was so much upset that the characters made those choices. I just thought I could have done a better job. <laughs> I mean, I think it was written okay. I just didn't agree with the direction it went in. I thought there yeah, could yeah. have been yeah. more development there of seven. There could have been far more development of species eight, four, seven, two, particularly as it was almost appealing to them for help when it was communicating with Tuvok. And mm. then at the end, we're just left with it and the unpleasant Herogen locked in combat. And I get what seven did. She felt that if she didn't get rid of both of them, the whole thing was going to be in jeopardy from the Herogen fleet. So I'm not quarrelling with what she did, but it's not the way I would have written it. Mm. I th I think you're right. I, I mean, morally, I think I would have gone a very different direction. Um, I think that um, uh, the the decision um, that was made uh, would have been better if they had have established a better relationship with eight four seven two. And um, but but I I have to say then then I it raises a question for me that that if destroying one organism um, would would bring safety or peace to others um, should should we destroy that organism or would it be better to keep that organism alive yeah look I mean all sorts of interesting ethical issues in this isn't it that sacrifice of, of one for the mini and Janeway I think quite correctly points out the difference between her making a decision and having a decision be made about you by someone else uh, doing that moral calculus. And I think that's an important ethical consideration for human beings is, is whether we make the sacrifice or whether we're sacrificing another uh, uh, being. So I, I think um, I'm, I'm with Janeway on this one. And I think actually there's a really deep paradox at, at the heart of this, which as you were mentioning Easter, uh, Elizabeth is right there in the Easter story. And it, it's this um, idea that, you know, sometimes it's worth the sacrifice, even if the sacrifice is large, perhaps even larger than you expected. That's part of, of the cost of being human. Yes, it is. Though, I mean, it's what the sacrifice would lead to is what is, I suppose, a debatable point. I mean, we were doing a Bible study on the Gospel of John last night. And of course, Caiaphas in this week's reading says it's better that one man die than the whole nation perish. So is it better that one 8472 dies than all of Voyager perish? But I'm not sure the parallels are exact enough because if that species dying led to, if they kept that species, 
on board and fought the Herodians. They're going to be blown to smithereens and species 8472 is going to get it in the gullet anyway. They're all going. So what would such a sacrifice achieve? Well, clearly in John there's a whole lot of irony there about Jesus being the one who does die for all, but I don't see it in this episode. Uh, and and Janeway comes out really hard line here um, and gives a strong lecture, um, which I just found to be um, hypocritical, yes. being a member of Team Tuvix um, <laughs> yep. and believing that um, Janeway actually operated in exactly the same way that Seven of Nine did in relation to restoring Neelix and Tuvok, who were people she loved and cared about. Um, and I, I actually think also that, that that raises the issue of what is the nature of sacrifice when it comes to sacrificing people we love and care about as opposed to just sacrificing some bestial CGI reptile that we're actually very happy to, 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 to destroy? Like I, I think that the nature of sacrifice also involves our relationship with the sacrifice. I, I read a um, commentary uh, which actually picked up that idea of, of Tuvix and, um, and suggested that perhaps on reflection about that particular instance, Janeway has actually come to this point of recognising that actually sacrificing another person as opposed to making your own sacrifice is, is morally incorrect. And that's what has hardened her uh, to this position that she now takes with species 8472. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that. I didn't <laughs> like, I thought she was a bit out of character. I thought she was really hard line with Seven. Um, and not putting herself in Seven's shoes at that moment that Seven does vanish them both off the ship. I mean, I can see what Seven's doing. There's a reason for it. It's not like it's insubordination for the sake of it or because you want to take over the ship. She's really trying to save people. Um, yeah. There is also traumatic injury for Seven um, in yeah. terms of this, this species 8472 and, um, was a species that was able to destroy parts of the collective that was a real threat to the unthreatenable Borg. Um, so she has she's also driven by a, an in, a strong fear of, of this, this particular group as well. So um, I, I, I think that, that there is a lot to talk about in relation to how the nature of sacrifice is influenced by our relationship and whether we're afraid or love or, or are connected to um, these decisions. I think the other thing, though, to, to bring out, and, and Janeway um, doesn't quite say this outright, but certainly um, gives a, a clue to it, is that it's one thing for us as, you know, um, civilians and ministers and whatever to argue about the, the different ethical positions. But one of the things that we don't have that um, they do, whether we like it or not, is an ethical imperative to follow the chain of command. So for Janeway, as she says, in, in, a, in a, um, a starship uh, with a chain of command, um, you know, it's not just the ethical issue of uh, do I save this being, do I sacrifice this being, do I save the lives of my crew? There is also a, a, another ethical issue, which is do I follow commands? And I think in the in the in the military sort of setting, uh, that is pushed much higher on the uh, sort of comparison list of ethical principles than than we might imagine as civilians. I think that's true, Lindsay, and I thought about that, but I also thought about the times where Chakotay, Harry Kim, Tom Paris, Balana, and many others have directly disobeyed orders and nicked off in shuttles and gone and done stuff, and they're back the next episode in their command as if nothing happened. So there's a certain, obviously there's flexibility about how you interpret that as the one at the top of the heap uh, giving the commands. And I thought there was some hypocrisy here with the way she came down so hard on Seven, where she has not done that to others. I need to push back on two fronts. Now, I'm, I'm as I was going through, I'm going, oh, I've got to push back on this, and now I've got to push back. So I'll push back first on the idea of command, um, that certainly um, there is a chain of command in military structures, but the the phrase, I was obeying orders, is not actually a get-out-of-jail-free get card for soldiers at the end of an activity. Um, um, soldiers are actively encouraged to explore 
um, the commander's intent um, and to interrogate the commander's intent as well. Um, and so there, there is a there is a responsibility for critical thinking and reflection. Um, and and certainly as a as a defence force chaplain, I've actually it's been my my role to encourage soldiers to actually engage in critical thinking. Um, and at times I've been pulled up by commanders who have actually said, you can't get them to think about that. They just have to do it. And I've said to them, actually, the regulations actually say that that each person is responsible for, for critically working out what, what the intent is and valuing the moral of that intent. I, I think you're assuming, though, that Starfleet is running in similar lines yes. to, um, you know, our, our defence forces or other Western democracies, perhaps. And uh, we don't know that for sure. I mean, I, I'm not sure that if you're a, a person in the oh. Chinese defence forces that there's quite the same sort of uh, encouragement to think about the uh, ethical exactly. issues. For sure. But we would hope then that um, the Federation, as we talk about it in such glowing terms as a utopian future, will have adopted the more positive aspects of critical thinking rather than the dictatorial aspects of, uh, of, of military command. That is true. Janeway was not showing any sign of that in this episode. I'm sorry, Will. Yeah. She was so hardline, and I'm not used to that from her. So that brings me to my other point, uh, and it's actually a, a critique of us um, in this, in that for the last four seasons, we've been saying, why do they have to wrap everything up at the end of every episode? Why can't they leave these things open? Why can't there be continuous consequences from one episode into the next? Um, at this juncture, they've provided us that. They've actually not wrapped it up. They've left us in this ambiguous space where relationships are broken and and consequences continue. So I, 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 can't, I, I would think that it might be harsh of us to critique them for actually attempting to do what we've been urging them to do since the beginning I'm of the series. I'm not critiquing them for that. I'm not. I mean, I think... The, the other thing that I'd say is uh, uh, my memory, you know, it, it might well be imperfect, but I don't think that it's true that Janeway has not imposed consequences on others who've, who've um, you know, broken the chain of command. And, I mean, I, I, I'm sure it was either Chakotay or, or Tuvok that she said, um, this is going to go on your permanent record as a, as a you know, mark against you. We, well, I mean, you, you say, ooh, but I mean, for someone like Tuvok, I'm sure that hurt um, uh, quite as much as saying to Seven, okay, you don't have access to primary systems without supervision. I mean, you know, I think... I think I think that there is that, and I guess I'm I'm interested because uh, I can't remember uh, this far back to what I watched many years ago. Whether this does carry on, or or whether it's something that that gets dropped, uh, so that'll be interesting to see in episodes to come. But I, I think she does impose consequences, and I think she we know is also the kind of person who, if Seven does. Uh, toe the line and does regain trust, um, Janeway will, will re-give her the, the authority and privilege that she's earned. I've got no doubt about that. But I think that it's been not done well in the past, Lindsay, about consequences. It just hasn't. Because every major actor that we have that we see regularly, except perhaps Neelix, I'm not sure about him, has stepped over the line some really stepped over the line, like with Tuvok and Chakotay, have both really pushed the envelope and gone directly against orders and done stuff. And it never seems, apart from a mark on your record, it never seems to have any consequences whatsoever. So, Well, according to the doctor, Belana Torres almost killed another officer by shattering his nose and almost sending it back up into the to the brain. I mean, that, and there were very little... Right. In fact, she got promotion out of that episode, yep. yeah. Yeah, yes, well, that's it. I do, do think it. there is a bit of writer bias going on here in some ways. And I feel that Seven has been made an example on as the latest crew member and perhaps in some ways the oddest one in terms of how she processes and responds to information. I mean, just, just to play the devil's advocate here, like this, this may all be true, but Seven was uh, a Borg who was, you know, at that time their deadliest enemy. She did um, be, behave very erratically when she first came on the crew, you know, trying to take over the... Um, the different systems to send messages to the Borg and then stealing shuttles to, 
to run away and, and so forth. So I think Janeway has given her a fair bit of rope and a fair bit of flexibility. Um, and I, I think I think Janeway is just really disappointed that having come as far as she thought they had, um, that that Seven demonstrates, uh, you know, a critical misunderstanding of, of what it means, you know, when the captain says, I, I hear your objection, but I'm giving you an order. Yes, I think Seven really in a moment of panic because you've got these two great lumps of creatures duking it out and a hostile fleet bearing down on you that you possibly, you cannot possibly survive their attack. She acts in that moment and she thinks to save everyone. She is acting with the good of the crew and the ship at the heart of it. It's not insubordination just because she feels like it. No, I agree. Isn't it nice to see the Federation outgunned here? Like, you know, I can remember not long ago we were saying, wow, everybody in this sector is just so primitive and useless and the Voyager is this death ship that, that can take out anybody as they pass through their space. But to see to see now three, um, I'm including Seven and her Borg heritage in this, three superpowers that, that actually are, are um, uh, really battling it out with each other um, and Voyager is, is really just the insignificant insect that's kind of sitting amongst them trying to survive the, the, the collateral damage. Yeah, it is insignificant because their weapons and everything else against whether it's 8472, the Borg or the Herogians, I mean, even against the organ harvesting mob, they had a lot of difficulty fighting that off. So mm. it, I think it was just the Kazon, really, that was calling them the death ship, wasn't it? And they don't count. No, no, there were a, there was. A oh few. no, we had we had bug ships that were firing at them, and they were just bouncing off, like you know. So yeah, they, yeah. and and there was like it was reported as a rumor in one one yes, episode, it was. wasn't it, that other other species were seeing them as this death ship, you know, whether whether they had earned that or not. Mm. I um, thought that just, was a Kazon spreading that rumor. So probably, who probably on That's right. <laughs> um, just to take a slightly different tack on on the ethical issue we've been talking about um, so far, um, I remember actually this is one of the times when watching this episode, I was reminded of how I thought and felt when I watched it the first time. Um, when there was the uh, quote of the week for me, which is Janeway saying, but part of becoming human is learning to have compassion for those who are suffering, even when they're your, your bitter enemies. And, and I remember when I first um, heard that, uh, you know, many years ago, having a response of saying, oh, well, that's right, but that's our thing. You know, that, that's our Christian thing. That's what Jesus taught. Why is Janeway in the Federation saying this? You know, and, and, and I, I got quite confused at the time. I'm like, you know, it's a, is, she, is she actually being influenced by Christian thinking? Or, and, and I think it's interesting now coming back to that and thinking, um, I think there's a wonderful truth there that was not something that, you know, um, was uh, absent in humanity until Jesus suddenly says, you know, love your enemies. Um, but but actually, it's um, an identification by Jesus and, of course, also the, um, the writers of the Old Testament who said similar things, um, of something that is at the heart of humanity, something that is actually intrinsic to what it means to be fully human. And perhaps we only see that fully lived out uh, in the example of Christ, but but it's there all the time uh, that part of being human is having compassion uh, even on your bitterest enemies. I would agree with that, Lindsay. I think it is part of being human and it may well be a part of other sentient species on our planet as well. But um, in many ways, it, it stops you being machine-like and not emoting or to not be able to feel compassion for something hurt or injured, it'd have to be quite extreme circumstances. And I think those things do exist um, where you may not feel it, depending on what's happened to you. But I know in this episode, I really felt sorry for old 8472. You know, it was so lonely and it was hurt and it was frightened and it had reached out to Tuvok. And I wanted to see that creature rehabilitated from the last episodes. And I wanted to have it sent home yeah. and go back to 8472's friends and say, look, they're not bad. 
they did this for me. There was no, there was no free willy in this episode. No, they, they, um, yeah. Um, look, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in this idea about compassion and it making us human and especially compassion for our enemies. And I, 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 I take that, that, that concept is actually, um, picked up in the gospels and also picked up in, in the epistles. Um, but, but it creates a, 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 a quandary for me because what happens if there is a, a, a marginalized group of people whose rights and freedoms are being taken away from them, but those rights and freedoms are actually toxic to the majority of, 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 of society. Um, do we, do we, are they suffering when they receive that their persecution of society, which inhibits their rights and freedoms um, being taken away from them Um and in some ways, the rights and freedoms to inhibit other people's rights and freedoms is part of their philosophical group. Should we have compassion for them as well? Or or, or, or is it all right to be able to say, no, no, this is not toler- tolerable? Are you wanting to argue that we should let the Nazis be Nazis, Will? Is that, that where you're heading with this? Well, no, no, I'm... I'm- I'm arguing that the philosophy of having compassion for our enemies' suffering may lead us to a place where we actually have to have to do that. Actually, allow Nazis to be Nazis because because otherwise it causes suffering for them not to have the freedom to be able to exercise their their speech in the way they want to. And I'm not just talking about Nazis. I, I'm talking about about Christians. So Christians, from a from a conservative perspective, might actually make a strong statement to say. Our rights and freedoms are being taken away because we're being forced to actually um, live in a society where people who we believe should burn in hell for all eternity um, are allowed to exist. Um, and so, so that this this notion of suffering and persecution is actually not as objective as we might want to make out, but quite subjective. And so, people can be victims of suffering for causes which actually need to be removed from our society. I think that's right, Will. Um, I don't think compassion is just this undiluted emotion that you apply willy-nilly without any thought or consideration to everyone that crosses your path. And I have to admit that my tolerance level of the Lyle, Lyle, whatever his name is, Shelton's of this world, is really being tested at the moment. I'm happy to love him from afar, but um, I think the damage done by people that say these other folks shouldn't exist and who actually will set upon them in really violent ways, as we've seen played out in Sydney in the last few days, I don't think that's acceptable. I don't think you can say because you don't like that someone else exists, um, I'm going to tolerate that and I'll tolerate you beating them up and and hurting them. That's not what compassion should extend to. I think what this conversation reveals is actually that any time we make ethical decisions, we are confronted with conflicting principles that that we hold as important. And, um, you know, I I mean, speaking of the the rights of... uh, conservative Christians. And just recently, I was involved in um, uh, putting together a a statement, um, a submission from the Uniting Church about whether um, religious educational institutions should be able to discriminate. And and one of the things that you have to say is, we recognise that that coming to a decision about this is going to mean curtailing the rights of one group of people as opposed to another group of people. So I think that's always the case. Uh, for me, the, the beauty of uh, Jesus' statement or the other places we find that in Christian and other religious texts is that it undercuts what I think we see as a normal rule of thumb. So when we're trying to work out these sort of conflicting ethical principles, I think um, it's a very human reaction, maybe the, the worst of humanity, to say, oh, well, I've got less um, concern for my enemy than these other people. So when I'm weighing how I act ethically, enemies are right down the bottom. And 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 I think what Jesus is saying is that's not right. Actually, you need to think just as carefully about your ethical obligations to your enemy as anyone else. That doesn't mean that in the end, uh, they will outweigh your uh, obligation to care for people who are being persecuted or marginalized or whatever um, uh, for innocent uh, things. 
Um, but it does mean that, that it changes just the, the brute equation that we have, which says friend good, enemy bad. Yeah, and the escalation of violence always leads to more violence and more death and more destruction. So, so killing people for just causes actually only causes those in those causes to feel more marginalised and to up their their level of violence and and uh, and and attack back. And so I I I, I get that. Um, but but at the heart of 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 Christianity. Um, are, are are some dangerous interpretations of these ethical principles. The, the, the idea that an angry God who set us tasks that we that they knew we could not achieve at the beginning of, of time um, has continued to hold that against us and will um, eternally torture and destroy some of us unless we choose to love him and and fall back into line. Is tyrannical um, and and not a god I want to follow or have any part no, of. No, it's not a very attractive proposition, isn't it? A god sitting there, acting really like a little Hitler, and just dictating who goes to the gas chambers and who doesn't, based on how they um, serve him or give obeisance to the the empire that has been set up, the kingdom that he created. Um, and I think that that's a real sort of sick parody of the real kingdom and the real way that I would like to think that works with Jesus and with God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- there was another really interesting line in amongst this sort of ethical uh, decision that's being made uh, or, or wrestled with by the crew that, that I thought was fa- fascinating. And it was in Janeway's story about rescuing the Cardassian soldier. Um, and and um, uh, she tells this story to Seven, but there's one point where uh, she talks about they can hear uh, the Cardassian moaning and, and uh, you know, uh, the um, commanding officer wants them to do something about it. They're not sure about it. Um, but she makes the comment, we couldn't just sit and listen to that poor man suffer. But the Cardassian's not a human. And and I think that that's yes. really quite interesting. That that part of the the compassion is that uh, empathetic ability, that ability to uh, to look at this other being and to put yourself in their shoes or put them in, in in your shoes enough to imagine they are a person just like me, and and so I can't listen to them suffer. And I thought that was quite interesting. That's. That's not what she's saying, though. When she's like, if we were to take that statement in its in its truest sense, without imposing any other emotional state to it, we could not sit, uh, bring ourselves to listen to him suffer. She had other options: call for a sniper, take him out. Like then you don't have to listen to him suffer yes. anymore, right? <laughs> so, so if the problem is hearing the suffering of another. Then, then we do other op- have other options. So they didn't have to actually go through an inefficient process of trying to drag him back and then work out how to deal with a prisoner of war. If they didn't want to, at its core, listen to him suffer, then just put a bullet between his eyes and then the silence will reign and there'll be no more needing to listen to the suffering. And that's why I think that using the word that poor man suffer is so important because if they didn't, uh, see uh, the Cardassian as a sentient being, they could have said, uh, we don't want to listen to that poor animal suffering, put a bullet in their head. Mm-hmm. It was because they saw it as a, another sentient being yeah. like me um, mm-hmm. that they took the harder, more difficult course. Yep. Well, I quite like that story because that's, I think that is a good demonstration of compassion. And there's lots of stories that I've read in fantasy where someone has showed compassion to the enemy and it comes back to reward them Mm. in some karmic like way i have to say i quite like that that's what i wanted to happen for 8472 Mm. that he'd be helped and sent back and he would and that would lead to some karmic thing where they stopped at least attacking Voyager. And we, we do have that in, in earlier in Voyager in the very first episode when um, Chakotay and Paris are actually in a jeopardy situation and Paris um, saves um, Chakotay's life. Um, and, and so you've got, you've got this kind of, they were enemies at that point and certainly in conflict with each other. So, 
So it's um it's it, like they they have played some of that out uh, amongst others, but not to the intensity that we're talking about. No, that's right. And when we talk about Jesus and he says, love your enemies, well, he doesn't always follow through on it quite himself. I mean, he says this in the Gospel of Matthew and then Matthew 23, he absolutely excoriates the Pharisees. Mm. Um, so he, even Jesus seems to discriminate, at least in that Gospel, about who is worthy of love and who isn't. And clearly Pharisees are not. Well, I don't know. Is it unloving to actually call somebody to account? Um, is it unloving to actually, um, I guess, say to to people, um, you know, uh, you're, you're on the wrong path, uh, to confront um, uh, um, fascism or, or to confront um, a behaviour that that is is harmful to to others? Um, in a way, could be loving, uh, and 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 yeah. I have to be careful with that because because uh, I guess conservative Christians who might persecute trans people would say that they are loving them by preventing them from being in a burning fire of lake for all eternity because God will punish them if they don't change who they are. Yeah, it's a difficult one, I think. Um, I mean, the words used that and that Jesus says, is he being loving towards them in the sense he's pastorally correcting them, I suppose is what you're mm-hmm. saying, or disciplining them. Yep. That's a hard one because, firstly, he condemns the whole bunch of them, not just the bad ones. Every Pharisee is bad in the Gospel of Matthew. There's no good yep. ones. Secondly, Even Nicodemus. And he's in John, but he's I mean, we could we John. could we could find good Pharisees. Is that what you're oh, saying? No, we can in Luke and John. Yes, yep. we can't in Matthew. Yeah, and he also condemns them to hellfire, which seems a very absolute thing to do. Mm. So that passage has always disturbed me in the light of Jesus saying, "Love your enemies," because there is just no love shown <laughs> that I can point out, even in the sense that you are suggesting, Will. But but Matthew has an agenda here. So he Matthew does. is is t- speaking to a, a group of people who have exited that authority and is, I guess, wanting to claim it. It's a bit like when the Greens take on the Labor Party; they kind of have similar ideologies, but they wanted he wants them to be part of their group instead of instead of another group. Um, and, and so the closer, so Matthew's gospel would have to be the closest to um, Pharisee authority of all of the gospels. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so he has an agenda to split the, split the, the right, <laughs> you know, like to split that end of, 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 of politics as part of the way that he would write the gospel. I, I get that. I understand the culture that led to Matthew saying it. What I'm pointing out is if you read the words, you have Jesus on the one hand and Matthew saying, love your enemy. And then mm. Jesus on the other hand and Matthew absolutely dumping on top of this group that yeah. Matthew doesn't like. Well, while we're talking about that, can I just point out um, a, a paradox, not a paradox, a, a problem that I saw with the script? which is, you know, we've been talking all this time about Janeway's sort of compassionate decision of wanting to send Species 8472 back, etc. But just a little earlier in the episode, they're hunting Species 8472 and they merrily say to the Herogen, yeah, you come along for the hunt, see, you know it better, you know, you could be, you could be part of hunting it down, yep. uh, which I, I just found this whole the enemy of my enemy thing uh, totally disparate compared to what uh, happens later in the episode. I thought there was an actual switching point, though, Lindsay. I get that because they've had a bad experience with Species 8472. Everybody has, um, including Voyager. And I get why they don't want it on the ship because it's already been quite destructive in engineering. So, But it's when it makes contact with Tuvok and Tuvok says it's actually alone, it's being hunted, it's wounded, and all it wants to do is go home. That flicks the compassion button. And they think, oh, oh. Oh, okay. That's mm-hmm. a bit tough. You're being in that situation, and they suddenly see it from Species Eight Four Seven Two's point of view, and that's what turns it around. But up until then, they just knew it as this ferocious beast that was full of hate, out to destroy everything. So, just like the Cardassian who is on the on the battlefield, you know, they suddenly recognise that this person is alone, and they're afraid, and yep. they just want to go home. Yep. Um, but they're still a Cardassian, you know. They're still capable yep. of torture. They're still capable, you know. And 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 I guess 
we come back to that vain hope that of empathy that you you were talking about before, Elizabeth. That that perhaps by letting this one go home, that that might um, change um, their perspective. And mm. and like the Samaritan woman in in John's Gospel, uh, they might run off. She might run off and tell everybody that they uh, that, that that they they had a different encounter with a Jewish person. And so perhaps um, this person might be the Messiah. Like uh, I, I think. I think it's a it's a vain hope though, isn't it? I mean, it's a long hope. And when I, when I hear Captain Janeway say, "This isn't a hunt; it's a slaughter. I'm calling it off now," the switch becomes more about the unfairness of the odds than than any vain hope that perhaps um, species eight four seven two might go back and give a favourable reference to the rest of its species about the federation. Oh, that's just my vain hope, Will. I'm not putting yeah. that onto Janeway. That's what I wanted to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Janeway, Janeway's motive is different. Janeway's yeah, motive, is. even though she tells this beautiful heartfelt story about her Cardassian wounded soldier, um, she, she doesn't call it off for that reason. She calls it off because the odds have gotten out of control. I mean, if there were, let's let's add five more species, eight, four, seven, two. Oh, the hunt's good now. Let's get back into it. I, I, I mean, I think people can have multiple motives and I'm sure that's true of Janeway. Yeah. Way that that you know it's 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 not just one or the other it's all of the above and I I do want to say um, Elizabeth that I I shared your your vain hope and uh, you know <laughs> even though I've seen this before it was many years ago and and when uh, seven you know pops onto the uh, panel and is 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 uh, quickly working away my hope uh, was that actually she was doing the thing required with the deflected dish to open the yeah. the, uh, the wormhole. Yeah, that's what I hoped she was doing. I didn't realise she was transporting them both back onto Herogen ships, which means poor old 8472 is probably doomed. Oh, yeah, that, that, that one would have been destroyed, yeah. Yeah. And I felt sorry for it. but Maybe we point. can live in a vain hope that one day Chakotay will have a relationship with an 8472 eight, uh, uh, and that that relationship will actually spark off an, a new time of reconciliation between the two species. Yeah, because I still remember the encounter with them before when they made um, telepathic contact with Cass and she said yep. they're absolutely filled with hatred. That's all she mm. was picking up, that this is a species that just hated with a passion she had never encountered before. So I hadn't forgotten that. So to have it admitting to Tuvok, it was feeling pretty lonely and hurt and mm. just wanted to go home was oh, a big step in a different direction. Now, that is an important point I wanted to raise, and I'll raise it quickly, and that is that hatred comes from somewhere. So so we talk about Nazis and we talk about the Second World War, but we actually have a whole series of events in the 100 years before the Second World War which actually created an environment where hatred could actually be whipped up. Um, and And... So in the case of uh, species 8472, the Borg invaded their fluidic space, started systematically destroying them and attacking them. And so that's where their hatred comes from. And I actually think the secret to overcoming uh, um, the bitterness is actually beginning to try and unpack where the narrative of hatred comes from and yeah. trying to assist people to find a new way to, to, to think. Yes, I noticed that that was absent with Seven, wasn't it? The, the fact that the Borg had invaded species 8472 space, as we realised last time, she conveniently forgets that in her narrative when she says, oh, they destroyed some of our ships and a lot of our people. And, and I mean, that comment you just made, Will, I think is absolutely correct. And for me, it's, um, you know, a pointer to the discussion we're currently having in our country about um, the response to the uh, Uluru statement from the heart. And uh, we've got a referendum uh, coming up on the voice to Parliament, which the Uniting Church has uh, said very strongly is something that we encourage a yes vote for. But that's only part of the process. And the other really big one is the truth telling, isn't it? It's that telling the truth about the history and, and where the, the different things that have come up ha started from. Yeah, I think that's really, really important because a lot of people, for whatever reason, we either weren't taught it or they've not absorbed it, when it's been taught about how violent that history was and how the odds were really stacked against the first people and how unfair it was, things were just taken from them. I don't think there's still a lot of Australians that don't quite get that. 
And I, I look, I, I, I think that, that that's the trickier path is actually trying to unpack um, the hatred. Uh, and there've been, there've been so many Star Trek episodes um, where we've actually stranded one crew member with our current um, uh, hot enemy species, whether that be Geordie LaForge on a planet with a, with a Romulan trying to work out how to get off the planet together or, um, you know, again and again, um, we actually have the, these, this narrative that Star Trek likes to play with that actually says what happens when we must see each other uh, and understand each other um, and, and, and how can that give us the opportunity to actually rework our narrative. Um, and just that comment about understanding one another um, brings to mind uh, a, a bit of uh, back and forth earlier in the episode where uh, Janeway is, is, is wanting to go and explore the Herogian ship, the one that in the end they discover a species 8472 in. Um, and uh, Seven says, why would you do that? It could be a trap. It could be dangerous. And and Janeway's response is, because that's how we'll understand more. We'll know more about um, who these people are. And, and, and that's actually really important. And, and uh, after they come back, um, Seven actually agrees that Janeway was correct and, and that the knowledge was worth it in this case. <laughs> in, in this case, that's right. She does put that, um, you know... Um disclaimer on it if you like uh, I was with seven on that because Janeway's always sticking her nose into <laughs> stuff and it doesn't always win well it just mm. doesn't and I thought you know you don't know what's out there you don't know what's waiting for you and you just beam people into it and they could be facing a whole pile of bristling guns you know yeah absolutely um, I, and I think that, I mean, that leads me to a, another really significant thing that comes up in this one, and that's the place of, of individual individuality and collective nature. I mean, the yeah. quote that I had with this was, was that Seven of Nine is puzzled. She's trying to work this out, and she expresses that to Janeway. And Janeway asks what that's about, and Seven says, you made me into an individual. You encouraged me to stop thinking like a member of the collective, to cultivate my independence and my humanity. But when I try to assert that independence, I am punished. Um, Janeway then comes out with this line that says, individuality has its limits, especially on a starship, which is that concept, Lindsay, you were picking up before about the chain of command, where there's a command structure. Seven of Nine responds, I believe that you are punishing me because I do not think the way that you do, because I am not becoming more like you. You claim to respect my individuality, but in fact you are frightened by it. And um, Janeway's only response to that is, as you were. As you were. <laughs> a command, a command. <laughs> I thought that was harsh. I actually oh. didn't like that at all. I thought this is a side of Janeway I am not really that fond of. I know what it is. It's about Mark. It's it's about Mark. She's still grieving. She's still trying to get through that um, process. She's received her breakup letter from Mark, and and she's 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 not not operating as a normal way. So well, that did occur to me. Will I have to? Say no, that. no. I'm I'm Team Janeway on this one. I think that Janeway has has <laughs> always had both a flexibility, but an expectation that people would in the end, if she gives them an order, follow that order. And I think she has regularly shown her disappointment, even her strong disappointment, when that's not followed. And she has imposed consequences. And I think that it's entirely appropriate and part of Seven's learning process that she's going through this now. Well, I think Seven does need to learn. I'm not arguing that, Lindsay. I'm going to question if this is quite the best way of going about teaching someone who's always been part of a collective and who's just learning to be an individual and who has the background that she has is sort of giving these sharp orders saying, right, bang, 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 bang. Actually the best way to address this person? I'm not sure. It does occur to me that I've had similar conversations with my adolescent children (laughs) Um, and that certainly grounding them or sending them to their room or drawing lines of discipline did not work um, with, with, um, with, with uh, helping them to be able to make those decisions. I mean, later on, objection noted, we'll do this without you. Seven of nine says you will fail 
and Captain Janeway says, and you have just crossed the line. Like it's they're they're like a parent adolescent argument taking place here. Well, they are, yeah. but I would argue that I mean that the the punishment that Janeway enacts is not a punitive one. It's not you don't, for example, it's not you don't get to play around in your astrometrics lab that you like. Um, you know, as a punishment, it's actually I can't trust you. And so you will not be allowed to use primary systems of the ship without supervision. Um, and I, I mean, I think I think that's in, an entirely appropriate response uh, from the captain to someone who they now realise they can't at this point in time trust. And and it's not taking away privileges for the sake of punishment. It's actually um, enacting a, a set of guidelines about what you will be allowed to do with the ship systems that I think is appropriate. I didn't think so much it was an inappropriate punishment, Lindsay, because you're quite right in the way you expressed that. I suppose for me what I didn't like was the way Janeway went about it. I felt it could have been done with a little bit more of that compassion that she's been flagging right through the episode and a bit more understanding of where Seven's come from and the struggle she's had to get to where she is. I didn't see any of that. It's just, this is an order, do this, or I'm going to smack you across the head, basically. Oh, okay, I'll pay that. So we're yeah. looping back round in terms of this snake of ethics that eats its own <laughs> tail, though. But So so we're excusing her behaviour to sacrifice uh, eight, uh, Species 8472 because of the journey she's had and the suffering she's undergone. Are we, are we back to sympathising with Nazis again? No, I don't think so, because it's not just that. I think her background is important to understand that. But it's also in the moment where Janeway was not Given what was happening, I think Seven actually made what she thought that was the best possible decision to make to help protect the yeah. ship. Yeah. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna double back and say, um, you know, I, I think I I think now I, I agree with Elizabeth that it's quite appropriate for Janeway to say to Seven, you got it wrong, but the way in which she uh, might help seven to understand why she thinks she got it wrong uh was not the best way yeah yeah the narrative again and so in some ways we could say that Janeway's lack of compassion in dealing with seven triggered seven's discompassionate response to dealing with species 8472 and so so there's a real important learning for us here that that we could actually be in the right cause with right empathy and the, and the, in a good position, but actually um, being discompassionate to the people who are opposing that may force them into an even stronger entrenched position. And so we end up with a far left and a far right. And that's where we get to some of the incidents that we've seen in the last little while. Um, And and that's difficult because it actually, it means that they're, they're, that that the behaviour of all people involved has actually caused that. I, I hate saying that because it kind of sounds like we're excusing where we ended up. Um, so I, I, I'm not wanting to do that at all, but there's a sense in which we have to actually go along the way at every point, like Jesus asks us to, how do we make sure the narrative of love is there rather yep. than narrative of hate and fear? Um, I was just thinking of all the research on this with conspiracy theorists and it shows that if you attack them and you actually ridicule them or you say that you're wrong and what you've learnt is stupid and, you know, you're just not getting it, they'll actually retreat further down their rabbit holes and they'll strengthen their positions. But finding some common ground that you can say, I understand you're really concerned about being sick, for example, you're much more likely to get a conversation that sets people to thinking. And all research is showing that quite clearly. Oh, I was listening to a podcast uh, the other day called uh, You Have Permission, which I quite enjoy. And, and the, um, the fellow on the podcast, uh, after a conversation, was sort of reflecting on um, the sort of political ideologies in the United States context and, and was making the point that he doesn't want to make the two sides morally equivalent. He said, you know, as I look at it, even if I try and be objective, there's only one side that's actually trying to tear down the structures of civil society and and to act uh, beyond and and without the law. Um, But I still 
want to say that there's something deeply wrong about the dynamic on both sides, which leads us to this polarization and this inability to to speak to one across and another across the divide, you know, and that that the the responsibility for how we get to the polarization is equally shared. But that doesn't mean that the particularities of what the two sides might be doing or arguing for is morally equivalent. Um, is it a bit like um, in is it in in uh, it's, it's in the Easter story where where they're slapping Jesus and one of the Pharisees actually says, "Well, look, I'm not disputing that he might be guilty of heresy or blasphemy, but we're actually not supposed to go around slapping people." Like so, so there's this idea that 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 he he was not siding with Jesus, but he was saying that it wasn't a good idea for them to be actually um, uh, breaking their own rules or their yeah. own codes of conduct in order to, to, to make the statement um, that Jesus was, uh, was, was, was um, in, in the wrong place regarding their law. I think that's right. Nicodemus also points that out in the Gospel of John when he says, since when does our law not allow someone to put their own case? Yep, so we see that throughout where they're challenged in that way. And I think that's right. So we're talking about freedom of speech here. I mean, that's a huge catch cry in our country here at the moment. Mm. Um, how much, like, at, at what point is is free speech harmful? I mean, if are we free to make hate speech? Um, mm. Are we free? Like, so how, you know, the, the, these are all the kinds of questions. Uh, and, and And when you've got a group like the Christians, who actually have in their gospel? I'm, I'm now talking outside of Christianity. <laughs> what just happened to me? But 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 I'm, I'm trying to to stand aside a bit. Um, blessed are you when people persecute you, when when they attack you for my name's sake. If if a Christian believes that they're standing up for God's word by actually persecuting a minority group, and they're being persecuted pushed back and 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 um and undermined because they believe that they're they're acting in god's interests um then that makes them stronger that 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 says that confirms for them and affirms for them that they're actually on the right track because there is resistance and persecution well that's the point i was making before about the research if you resist them and persecute them you'll just harden their stance um, I mean, I personally don't think any of these Christian Lives Matter people actually read their Bibles because some of the stuff I've heard come out of their mouth would be horrifying to Jesus, absolutely horrifying to Jesus. And the other thing I question about them is their capacity to live and let live. All right, you cannot like that person's lifestyle, but that doesn't mean you get to abuse that person or show physical violence towards that person. My advice is Christian ethical, uh, Christian right people, just ignore them. And and I mean, I think coming back to Will's comment, which is, you know, what about free speech? That that we actually do have um, in our laws some fairly well yes. thought through sort of um, guidelines and guardrails. And so, for instance, it it would be perfectly okay for me um, to say I I. I don't like the behaviours of this group of people. I think that ultimately that has a detrimental effect to society. That's free speech. But if I say we need to go in there and grab them by the hair and, you know, drag them or something like that, yeah. it's it's incitement to violence. You're actually saying to people That's we right. need to do violent things. And we have very clear laws that say that is where you cross the line. Yeah. Yep. So and when you use so. a word like destroy on your placard, then you're yep. actually yep. doing that. And you are. But but the, the the complexity is that the God that these people follow does breed violence towards LGBTQAI plus mm. people. It does threaten them with with eternal and complete violence if they actually don't change from from the way that they are. Well, I would say to them, Jesus says, judge and you won't be judged and leave the judging to yeah, God and just yeah. mind your own business and go to church and leave them alone. Exactly. I mean, you know, I think we've already all said that we, we don't recognise that God as the God that we see in Jesus Christ. But, yeah, I mean, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Even if you had that kind of view of God, leave it to God rather than thinking that, you know, God wants you to take uh, vengeance into your hands. 
That's exactly right. And if I am not convinced that they're doing all of this stuff towards LGBTQI people because they're worried they're going to hell. They're doing it because they really, really dislike yeah. them. And that's a different motive. So where does it come from? Where does this dislike come from? Are, are they are they afraid that they may see something of themselves in there? Is there a concern that that like so? I, I guess that's the question that I would ask. Is is it comes back to that narrative of hatred? The way towards reconciliation is naming where the, the narrative of hatred has come from and trying to actually find out what what's what's going on deep down here. Um, that's causing such a, a, a strong and violent reaction. I agree, Will. I think that's a, a lot to do with it. And you'll always find some sick folk among them who are psychopathic or sociopathic who just like hitting people. Yeah. And so they pick a group that they can pick on and they'll focus on them for whatever reason. But for others, I think that fear and misunderstanding, fear of the other, not understanding the other and why they're like that, is probably at the root of a lot of why those people act the way they do. Isn't it fascinating? We've been so hard on the crew of Voyager, um, but these Herogens are beyond redemption, aren't they? I mean, they're I just, so. they, oh, they, oh. <laughs> they, they don't care. Um, they, they have dehumanized anyone who they might decide as prey. Um, and, and so that's the, the secret to them being able to maintain that position is to actually say that there is, that, 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 uh, they, that, that their prey isn't, um, worthy of any rights or, or any consideration. Or if anything. only they had some other way to channel their, uh, violence. That's correct. <laughs> Perhaps uh, the installation of holodecks might actually help them um, in the future. Like we tried with, um, like Odo tried with the Jem'Hadar. Um, yeah, and that yeah. worked well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't know about this. I don't know. I think I know enough about the Herogens, but so far they're not presenting well, I mm. have to say. <laughs> they're a bit concerning with the way they want to just hunt everyone who isn't themselves. Mm. Can I add something positive? Um, I I absolutely thought that Tony Todd, mm. who plays the Alpha Herogen in this episode, um, did a phenomenal job. I, his voice is yeah. just unmistakably sinister and 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 powerful. And um, so we've seen Tony Todd before. He plays Kern, the brother of Worf, uh, in the episode Sins of the Father and Redemption, and then again in Deep Space Nine as Sons of Mog. But interestingly, showing the depth of his ability to act, he also plays the uh, the, the aging Jake Sisko in the episode called In the an Visitor. alternate reality. Um, and in an alternate yes. reality. Um, so, so I just, I just wanted to take a moment just to hat tip to Tony Todd, who did a, did a fantastic job in this yeah. episode. Um, given that we couldn't see him at all, cause he was no. so completely <laughs> consumed by makeup and, uh, and prosthetic. Well, there was a lot of favorable comments about him on IMBD. I noticed. Mm. Yep. Mm. Yep. So, um, yeah, and Kern Kern is a, is a fantastic character. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I looked it up and saw that he'd only actually appeared as Kern in three episodes because he's such a significant character um, in the Star Trek universe, being Worf's brother. Um, I, I was sure that he must have been at least twice as many, maybe three times as many episodes than the three that I'd seen him in. I assume he's not eight foot tall. Oh, he, he's, he's, tall. he's up there. He's taller than Michael Dorn. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So... I, I I don't know how tall Tony Todd is, but he would have to be in the in the latter half of six foot. I mean, he, he's he's a very tall man. Yeah, because these dudes yeah. are big. Yep, yep. No, that's right. And and likewise, um, we we had um uh, the another actor who played a Herogen. This one um is Clint Carmichael, uh, who plays the other Herogen actor who plays one of the Norsicans that stabs. Um, uh, the young Picard through the heart in the episode um, uh, called um, um, Tapestry. Tapestry. Yeah, yeah. So, so they've picked these actors to play tall aliens over and over again. Um, and um, and I, I um, I think um, it's it's good to see the these actors getting an opportunity to to play different kinds of roles in the series. Yeah. So it's a good thing about tall Horogen. Yeah. Well, there you go. 
Well, that's probably all we need to do today. I mean, it's been a deep episode, um, the episode Pray. I hope it's given you something to think about uh, and explore. If you've got comments about this episode, then please feel free to put them into our Facebook channel on the Never Odd or Even um, uh, Facebook page uh, or drop us an email at neverodoreven.me at gmail.com. Uh, love to hear from you. Um, and, um, you know, if you send us an email, we'll, we'll read it out on the, on the podcast. So that'll be good. Um, yeah. So, um, many more medical controversy next week, uh, with our episode coming up, uh, and, um, and, and certainly a different look at seven of nine and her relationship with the crew as we go forward. So looking forward yeah. to that next yep. week. Well, until next week, I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Rain.